Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Hosea 4, 1 through 2 is actually kind of um, the opening lines or the opening statements of a prosecution like in a court case. God is bringing a case against the people of Israel. And so he opens up his opening statement, is put in the words of Hosea, um, and Hosea says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. So here's the charge. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is one of the very few places, actually I think there's only two places in, um, in all the Old Testament prophets where the prophets are mentioning or referring to um, the Ten Commandments or the law, the law of Moses. Um, and in fact, here we can see that there's five of the commandments that are being broken right here. Do you see that? Um, cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. Those are five of the Ten Commandments that Hosea... Um, or God speaking through Hosea, says you are breaking. You're breaking these important laws, um, part of the covenant. Um, the prophets will often criticize people for um, following the letter of the law but not having the heart and the intent of the law. But here, in this case, the prophet Hosea is saying you need to be paying attention to the law and you're not. You're breaking the law. The Ten Commandments are being broken. And when you break the Ten Commandments, that's the covenant that God made with Israel, the people of Israel. And so when you break this covenant, you're breaking relationship with me, God, and with each other because these sins are affecting other people, right? Stealing, lying, murdering, adultery, they all break the bounds of relationships, and people are seeking life and community in these wrong places and in the wrong way. And as a result, the law is being broken. And we'll come back on more detail in just a minute on some of this. So that's kind of the opening part of chapter 4. Chapter 5 continues the criticism, focusing mainly on the priests and the priesthood, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel who should be aware of the Ten Commandments and the fact that they're not being followed. But they're not doing their job either. And so Hosea and God are criticizing all the priests for not being good leaders in this way. And then chapter 6 opens up with a response of the people, and Justin read part of that too. Um, they promise to repent and seek God's forgiveness and healing, but they're presuming on God, really, because they're assuming that God will automatically forgive them without them taking any part in it. Uh, Hosea 6.3 says, as sure, this is the people speaking now in, in response to God's accusation. As surely as the sun rises, God will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. That's interesting language when we talk, we'll talk more about this using nature as a metaphor for what God is doing. Um, but God gets insulted by this, the fact that they're assuming and taking for granted that he will forgive them. And he finds out that he believes that their repentance, so-called repentance, is really pretty shallow and short-lived. Because his response then to their response is in 6, 4 through 7, What can I do with you, Israel? What can I do with you? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears when the sun comes out. 
So therefore, I cut you into pieces with my prophets. I kill you with the words of my mouth, my judgments that go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As Adam, you have broken the covenant. You are unfaithful to me. So God still comes back with them saying, I believe that the words you're speaking are just words and the actions you're going through are hollow and you don't really mean them and you don't intend to live up to them. So that's an overview of chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now let's go back to chapter 4 in the opening verses and we'll dig a little bit, drill down a little bit deeper on that. Hosea 4, 3, this is again God speaking to the people of Israel through the prophet Hosea. Because of this, that is all the law breaking and things like that, all, because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea are all swept away. And then in verse 10, they will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. So basically, there are no signs of life in the land of Israel. The land's not producing. Malnutrition is setting in because people are eating, but they're just eating empty calories. Um, sexuality has been divorced from the proper context of family and reproduction, and it's been incorporated into these drunken parties and orgies that they're having. And so that's the part of the critique that Hosea is making for the people of Israel. It's basically a picture of a culture or a society that's on the brink of death. Now, we know <clears throat> birth at the one end of the life spectrum and death at the other end are both um, mysterious and awe-inspiring in some ways, but they're not very pretty, right? Um, but they're not pretty in different ways. Birth, there's lots of messiness and blood and fluid and things like that, and there's crying going on, there's struggle involved. And yet somehow you realize that there's the promise of life in this little bundle, this person who's been flexible and squished and pushed and twisted and turned and comes out pink and yelling, but you know that there's growth. Normal growth is going to happen. Baby fat will be added on and growth will occur. Um, so there's a promise, there's a hope in that. The other end of life, death, um, is also kind of not pretty, um, but it's a different kind of uh, not prettiness. Um, death is words like shriveled and withered come into um, your mind. Dry and stiff. The joints get dry and stiff, and color is not pink and, and healthy, but gray or ashen white kinds of color. Fading vitality. There's no promise of life um, up ahead. That's the kind of picture that we see Hosea painting here with his words. Um, this is a people who maybe don't realize it, but they're on the brink of death. They were struggling mightily at though to try to keep on living, and they were looking for life, but they were looking for life in all the wrong places. Verses uh, 12 to 14 in Hosea 4 tell us, kind of point this out to us. Let me read those, and we can read this together, or I'll read it for us. My people, this is God again speaking about Israel through the prophet Hosea. My people consult a wooden idol, or other, other translations say a pole or a tree. It's something that's wooden that's been erected. Sometimes people call it an Asherah pole. Um, it's like a wooden idol, or sometimes it is an actual tree. People consult a wooden idol, and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills. 
under oak, poplar, and terebinth trees, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution, and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Now, just kind of as a little side note, it's interesting that here God is not implying a double standard to sexuality, is he? It's the men as well as the women who are involved in this and equally guilty as well. So, verse 12, where he says that the spirit of prostitution leads them astray, they are unfaithful to their God, that's a violation of the first commandment. So, again, Hosea is referring back to the Ten Commandments where people have, have uh, substituted a false god for their own, their own true god. Um, and he uses a lot of words in here, mainly prostitution, to talk about how unfaithfulness is occurring. Um, and Pastor Andy talked last week about um, Hosea's wife, Gomer, who was supposedly a prostitute or at least promiscuous. Um, Hosea uses this word like six times, the word prostitute or prostitution um, or sometimes harlot in this one passage. Um, so it's, it's a strong, for him, a strong metaphor, a strong picture of unfaithfulness of the people towards God. And what they are doing as they're searching for life, um, they are looking in all the wrong places for it. And because of that, um, they're involving themselves in this what's called a fertility cult or a fertility uh, religion. Um, they're searching for life, and so they're acting out these fertility rites. Now, there's a, let me show a map. We have that map up there, Jay. Israel lies in what's called the Fertile Crescent geographically, and it stretches from Mesopotamia, where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are. That's modern-day Iraq. Um, and it kind of makes a curve, and then along the edge, you can see Palestine there on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and then it curves back down into Egypt. That's called the Fertile Crescent, Crescent, because it's kind of crescent shape, and that's where a lot of our civilization is traced back to. Um, in fact, it's called the Cradle of Civilization. That's another name that they give to this area. Um, so you can see in Mesopotamia, those two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they could rely on those rivers there for irrigation to grow crops. And down in Egypt, of course, you've got the Nile, the mighty Nile River, as the source of water for growing crops there. And Egypt was known later as the breadbasket of the Roman Empire because they could provide enough grain to feed all of the Roman Empire, basically. Um, and there, there have been um, archaeologists and geneticists have found traces of um, grain, cereal grains being grown in Syria as far back as 9,000 years ago. And in the Jordan Valley, which is, you know, in, in Palestine there, they've found p- places where fig trees have been planted as long ago as 11,000 years ago. So you can see why this is called the cradle of civilization and the Fertile Crescent. The thing is, Israel, right in the middle of that crescent, um, doesn't have any major rivers. There's the Jordan River, but it's really, in the summertime especially, it just gets down to a trickle. It's not enough to sustain good cropland. So they, the Israelites, and on the Canaanites and the other people that lived in this area, they had to rely on rainfall to grow their crops. And, you know, rainfall is a lot more erratic, I guess, unpredictable, unreliable, a lot more so than a river is. And so, therefore, they were desperate to find ways of encouraging rain. So they became involved in these fertility cults that would help the rain, they thought, would help the rains come. Uh, They worshipped this storm god called Baal, or Baal. 
Um, Pastor Andy mentioned a little bit about this God uh, last week. We're going to add a few more details today. Um, he's identified with the storms, the rainfall, and kind of by extension with a, being a God of fertility and fertility of the land, mainly to grow crops, but also of your herds of sheep and goats, cattle, and also human fertility as well. Um, so they would worship this Baal and go through certain rites that they think would encourage Baal to give them prosperity and fertility in their crops, their herds, and in their own families as well. Um, and a lot of this, these shrines to Baal were built on mountaintops or hilltops underneath or around a great big tree. Um, or if there was no tree, they would build one of those Asherah poles and worship around that. It's funny that the, a tree, it becomes uh, the focus of their um, worship, but if you think about it, trees have a long symbolism of life in human uh, history, and in fact, even in our more modern history, we find that there's significance in different kinds of trees. Here's a picture of what's called the charter oak. It's in Connecticut. Um, this was an ancient old oak tree, and there's a legend that way back when the state of uh, Connecticut was getting started in the 1600s, uh, they had written up a royal charter, um, grant, land, a land grant from the crown, the British crown at that time, to the people of Connecticut to establish their own little colony. Well, one of the governors wanted to take over Connecticut and was seeking to steal this charter, this official document. So the legend is that this charter was hidden in a crack or a crevice in this old, big old, huge oak tree and was kept safe there and hidden from the agents of this bad governor. <clears throat> well, it became famous as kind of the foundation, the part of the foundation story of the state of Connecticut. And on their quarters, the quarters, the state quarters that we have, Charter Oak is on the back of their court, the Connecticut quarter. Um, here's another picture. Um, do I have any of my Texans here in the room still? Okay. This, recognize this picture? Famous, this is the, the, at the end of the Battle of San Jacinto. Sam Houston was wounded in battle. He lies on the ground underneath this, this big old tree. And the defeated General Santa Ana, the Mexican general, is being brought to him. He was trying to escape, and they caught him and brought him to Sam Houston. And so this is a picture of that. But that tree became famous as the place where Texas statehood kind of began. Um, another picture of a tree. Let's see the next picture. Does anybody recognize this famous picture of this famous tree? No? The guy in front is um, Morgan Freeman? There you go. Yeah, that's the famous tree where he found the box that told, you know, where Andy wrote the letter and sent him instructions on how to find him and set up. Anyway, Shawshank Redemption, famous tree. That's actually, the movie takes place, I think, in Maine, someplace like that, but this was actually shot in Ohio, and that tree was hit by lightning a few years ago and had to be destroyed. So it's no longer there, but it was a tourist um, attraction for a while because of that, the famous movie. Um, we have a famous tree here in Fort Collins. Anybody know about that one? It's called the Council Tree. The shopping area that's out here, let's see, on off of Harmony and a little bit east of Timberline, where the Target store is and Cafe Athens, there's a series of shops along each side of a little, you come to a roundabout and you take a right turn, you go down this little street, there's shops on two sides. That street is called Council Tree. And it's named after what used to be called the Council Tree. And this was an old cottonwood tree that used to stand out there um, on East Horse Tooth, a little bit this side of the Poudre River. 
I think, and used to be famous for being the site of councils by the Indian tribes. The Arapahoes had a chief they called Chief Friday. Um, he would meet with his councils there, with his tribes and other tribes as well, and do trading and bartering. They would meet when the white men first came in. They would meet with them. Um, Chief Friday was famous for keeping the peace between all the tribes and, and all the white settlers. Um, in fact, he didn't want to be chief. He didn't want to be called chief because that meant you had to lead, lead war. Um, and he didn't want to lead his tribes into war, so he, he deferred from being called that, but people did it anyway. Anyway... Cottonwood trees live about 30 years usually. This is over 120 years old when this picture was taken, somewhere back in the 1940s, we think. Um, it's originally a black and white photo, but it's been hand-tinted. Um, but the, the Utes and the Arapaho used to meet under this tree because it was a, so tall out in the middle of the plains, you know, it's pretty easy to spot. Provided a lot of good shade, a good place to camp, a good place to meet, and it became known as the council tree where councils occurred. Um, in the 1930s, it got damaged by a fire. They think a <clears throat> farmer that owned the land was trying to burn off some weeds, and the fire got away from it and burned the tree and kind of damaged it. So that's kind of what it looked like after the fire. And then eventually it had to be taken down or it fell down. Um, when they cut it down, they chopped it up, of course, and they found over 300 pounds of lead bullets in the trunk. So apparently it was also a target practice site as well as being a site of councils. Anyway, that's our local con connection. We have lots of connections with trees. Trees are important to us, and in human history, they become symbolic of life. Um, you think about our evergreen trees, they, those are symbolized ongoing or eternal life, and that's one reason why Christmas trees are evergreens. It was part of a pagan tradition, and it was Christianized by Christians, and now it becomes part of our Christmas celebrations. So anyway, back to Hosea. He talks about these oak and poplar and terebinth trees where Baal worship was taking place. And so for them, a tree was a source or a symbol of life. And they would go through these um, rituals and, and uh, certain rites to try to ensure the fertility of their crops and their, their lands and their, their, their uh, herds. Here's how it worked. <clears throat> it's kind of a form of what they call um, sympathetic magic. That is, if, you, if humans act out something, it can kind of reflect on what the gods will do, and therefore the gods will bestow on them life or whatever. It's a little bit like what voodoo, the idea behind voodoo. If you make a doll of someone and push a pin into it that's supposed to cause pain in the actual person, that's called sympathetic magic. That's a little bit what Baal worship was like. Um, Hosea condemns this practice because it's a desperate and misdirected search for life. But what they did was called sacred prostitution. Uh, young women who were approaching the age of, of marriage, or maybe if you were engaged to be married, they would go to these shrines and they would have intercourse with the priests of Baal there that would hopefully ensure the fact that when they become married, they could bear children and have a large family. And that was usually a one-time thing. Um, for men, they would go to these shrines and they would meet with the priestesses of Baal, um, have intercourse with them, and that would supposedly ensure that year's crops and that year's uh, group of lambs and, and baby goats, uh, that they would have um, a, good, a good year with their crops and their, and their herds. Um, and because that needed to happen every year, the men would go back every year and go to their Baal site. Um, it sounds gross and immoral to us, but for them, it was a real powerful way of trying to stay alive. 
um, so that you know, they could have the rain that would grow the crops, and they would have the herds of uh, the herds that would help them give them sustenance as well as be a source of their wealth. Again, Hosea is condemning all of this because he's saying you're looking for life, but you're not looking in the right places. It's <clears throat> about 20 years ago. Um, there's a Christian theologian. His name is Stanley Hauervoss. He wrote that he was talking about our culture now. And he said that we are a people of omnivorous desire who, not knowing which desires are best, merely grasp at everything. That's what Hosea was facing. And I think 20 years later, I don't know, can we doubt that that's still happening in our culture as well? We are grasping at everything because we don't know which is best. But we are omnivorous with our desire. We see signs of it every week. People who are desperately trying to um, chase after whatever they think brings success or fulfilling life to us. Um, but we only find, we find, all we find is that we just get exhausted with this. Um, our efforts to find happiness and all these different ways of looking for fulfilling life um, leave us lonely, some people, or dissatisfied, um, unable to find that. So it leaves us thinking, here's a question which we might want to talk about more in our life groups, but at least give me, I'll give you a couple of general directions to think about. Um, what kind of Asherah poles are, are in our lives? What are we relying on or what are we seeking after as a way of fulfilling our lives? Um, most directly based on our passage today could be our romantic and sexual relationships. Um, where do we seek fulfillment from that and how do we do it? Um, could it be our children, our families? Um, some people wrap themselves up so much in, in their child raising and in their family life that they forget about other more important things, even, yes, even more important. Um, materialism is probably another form of a false god or an Asherah pole, maybe. Um, food or drink or money or possessions. Um, even our work can become our God, our false God. All of these, our work, good materialism, materialism things, uh, our children, our families, um, sex, uh, love and sex, intimacy, all of those are good gifts that God has given us. But yet, again, there's a fine line between a healthy way of using those or enjoying those and an unhealthy way of using those. And for Hosea and that culture, and maybe for us in our culture today, um, it's easy to cross that line and not realize where we've gone off the tracks. Fine line between life and death, healthy and unhealthy ways of seeking a fulfilling life. So, going, going back to Hosea, <clears throat> if these false gods, this Baal, and the priests and priestesses, if they're a, a bad way or not the correct way to an abundant life and to a, a true life, then what is the way? Well, Hosea points us in that direction right at the end of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 7. Um, this is God speaking again. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, however, or whenever I would heal Israel, I have to expose their sin and their crimes first. So God is saying he will and he wants to restore our fortunes and heal Israel. The question is, um, how do we recognize that? How do we access that? What are some of these characteristics that we need to be looking for? Um, a couple of clues for Hosea and for us, we need to go back clear to the beginning of our story. Um, which we find in the Bible in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, verses 27 to 28. 
The story tells us that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So we see that in the beginning, we had a close relationship with God. We were God's reflection, God's image. And God blessed us and told us to be fruitful and multiply. So the idea of reproduction and human sexuality is part of God's plan and idea from the beginning. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 9, God, or the, the Bible says, God, The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow in the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So again, trees, again, there's this language, this metaphor of trees being good for us, being a source of food and sustenance for us. Um, these early parts of the story, of our Christian story, tell us that God created us, humans. He created the creation, gave us a job to do to take care of that creation, was in close relationship with us in the beginning. <clears throat> now, we know from later on in the story that the first man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, disobeyed God. They ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil that they weren't supposed to, and of course, um, disobeyed God, which re is reflected in all of the e evils and the ills that came that Hosea is dealing with, you know, centuries later. Um, but to think about what the characteristics of abundant life are, looking back, we can see that um, if we can reconcile and restore these re original relationships, that might be one clue to what an abundant life really looks like. These relationships that were damaged by Adam's disobedience and what we do as well, our relationship between ourselves and God, that might be a clue for what an abundant life looks like, restoration and reconciliation there. We know that one of the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience was that their relationship was broken. Um, they remained together, but yet they were ashamed of being naked in front of each other. Um, they had to struggle and work to be in community with each other. Um, so reconciling those relationships, human relationships, would be another indicator, I guess, of what an abundant and healthy life looks like. And then the third relationship would be our relationship with the nat natural world, with all of creation. Um, one of the consequences we know was that God said that Adam would have to struggle to make a living from the soil. And so uh, that is indicative, I think, of all of our relationship with our natural world. What kind of relationships do we have with the created order? Uh, reconciliation and, and proper care of that would be maybe one more area that would be, I guess, a good clue to what an abundant life looks like. Restored relationships in all three of those areas, with God, with other people, and with the world around us. Getting a little more specific, um, characteristic of an abundant or a fruitful life, we see in the New Testament there's clues dropped all over the place about what that looks like. Uh, there's a couple of them, um, and f instead of me reading them, I've, let's take a look. There's, there are pew Bibles in your pew. See if you can grab the closest one there. And look on page 946. 946 is one place where there's a, a short list of what an abundant and fruitful life would look like. This one comes from Galatians, the book of Galatians that Paul wrote. Um, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 has a list with, of what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Um, would anybody be willing to read that, just verses 22 and 23? Just out loud for the rest of us? 
Jen, would you? Okay, thank you. 22, yes. Okay, thanks. That's one image, one snapshot of what a fruitful life looks like. So we know what we can be aiming for, what we, what we need to seek after, rather than what the people of Israel were doing in Hosea's time. Here's another list. Um, somebody else want to look up on page 984 in those Bibles. Right at the top, upper top left-hand corner of that page, page 984. This is in the book of Second Peter, and Peter talks and shows or writes out this little list of personal qualities that can be developed in our lives. Would a volunteer be willing to read that one aloud for us? Any takers? What? I'm sorry. What? Really? We got different versions of the Bible. Okay, can somebody, Chris, you got an electronic version. Okay, this is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Okay. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, Okay, thanks. Sorry about the page, incorrect page numbers for some of you. So here's two, two little lists, two little snapshots from the New Testament that from the Christian perspective are illustrations of what a, an abundant or a fruitful or a productive, I think is a word Chris used in that passage, of what our lives can look like. Now, sometimes we compare ourselves to those lists. We may fall short. We may have nailed some of them. I don't know. Um, but the important thing is, and part of both, both of these passages came from recent sermon series that Pastor Andy preached. One was the Fruit of the Spirit passage here a few months ago. And then just at the beginning of the summer, the principles of change, I think the Second Peter passage was used. These are not, and Pastor Andy mentioned this, but I want to reiterate it and emphasize it. These are not um, self-help lists that you check off as you try to do this yourself. Um, these are natural byproducts of an organic relationship that we have with Jesus. Um, just like a crop needs uh, good soil and water uh, to bring to life the, the life that's embedded in that little seed, um, we humans, we need a living connection with our source of life. And for us, that's Jesus who connects us with God, the ultimate source of life. In fact, he said this um, a couple times, we obtain this abundant life not by some effort of our own, but through our connection with him, our relational connection with Jesus. Um, John 10, verses 9 through 10, Jesus is speaking here, and he's talking about, again, using a very kind of down-to-earth natural metaphors and imagery here. He said, I'm the gate, the gate to the sheep pen or the sheep fold, he called it, um, where the sheep are kept at night to be, keeps, be kept safe. I am the gate to that sheep pen. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Or other translations say they may have life to the full. Or they might say a rich and satisfying life. This is what the people of Israel in Hosea's time were seeking, a rich, full, abundant life, but they were going about it in the wrong way and looking in the wrong places for it. Here, Jesus says, the way to get there is through me, by your connection with me. In another place, John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. He's changing metaphors here, but still it's a very agricultural kind of metaphor. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. But this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So again, Jesus is the connection. If we are connected to him, we will have the source of life in us. Now, here's the irony and the paradox of all this. Jesus is our source of abundant living, right? He's said so, and we believe it. And yet, the source of abundant life wound up dying on a tree, This is what we call the cross. Um, Paul, in another place where he wrote his letter to the Galatians, actually refers to the cross as a tree. And here's what he said. Christ redeemed us from our self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That's what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse, and at the same time, dissolved that curse. And now because of that, the air is cleared and we are all able to receive God's life, His Spirit in us and with us by believing. So there's a paradox built in here that Jesus, the source of life, gives us life through the act of dying on the cross, a tree, in other words. And He calls us to this same kind of a paradoxical way of life, paradoxical way of life. He calls up us to give up our lives in order to receive his life. Um, <clears throat> that's part of the Christian way, part of Jesus' way. John 12, 24 to 25, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Now, some of the old timers back in the uh, 1800s and even through the 1900s, early 1900s, they talked about this. They called this dying to self. They used this imagery and this metaphor here that Jesus uses of a grain of wheat or a grain, a kernel that goes into the ground, dies, which is a way of talking about the transformation of a seed into a sprout. And talked about how that has to be our pattern of living. We die to our, our self, our selfish selves, and then that allows Jesus' life to flow in us and through us. It's hard to understand. It doesn't make sense. It's paradoxical. In order to gain life, you have to die. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he calls us to do as well. And that's one way of understanding um, what we experience when we receive communion. Communion is one way for us to symbolize and act out that act of dying. Jesus gave himself for us, and when we receive communion, we are remembering that act of self-sacrifice. So when we are coming to communion today, um, I want us to think about three possible ways of what this might mean to us. 
And as I talk about this, the worship team, you all can come up and we'll get ready to to prepare for communion. Um, One is that we can repent and receive God's forgiveness. That's what Hosea was calling Israel to do. Um, Secondly, we can receive Jesus' life and his sustenance. The act of taking this little piece of bread and drinking a little bit of juice or with the juice, um, that's symbolic of Jesus' nurturing our lives. We need food. We need liquid to survive. And this is symbolic of the spiritual food that we need, that we receive from Jesus. So that's a second way that you can think about communion this morning. A third is what I've just talked about, identifying yourself with Jesus' sacrifice and committing yourself to following his way and living a self-sacrificial life on behalf of other people and on behalf of God. You may be thinking about all three of these as you receive communion today, or it might be one of those. I'm not sure. It's up to you. But as you come, think about those things and what you were experiencing in communion.